but it's uh, like I mentioned, it's good to see everyone. Um, Happy New Year. Um, I, I hope you guys all had a refreshing uh, holiday and break. Um, as you can tell, it, for our first youth group, um, I, I wanted us to spend our first youth group all together. Um, and the first right reason why is, is very simple. Um, it's that despite being separated now, uh, despite the fact that junior high and, and high school normally meet separately, whether in person or online, the simple reason why I wanted us to start our new year together as one youth group is because we are family. Uh, that as separate as the junior high and high school groups may seem, despite some of our seniors having no idea who our sixth graders are, this is still nevertheless a family of older and younger brother and sisters. But the reason, the second reason why I wanted us to spend our first youth group together in 2021 is because as we participate in life together as a family, I wanted all of us to be on the same page, united in purpose and vision together as we step into the new year. Um, you know, over the, the three week break, um, from youth group, I had a lot of time, uh, maybe too much time, reflecting and praying about what kind of direction God wanted to take us in the new year. And as we start this new year, with all that has happened uh, last year and continues to happen, as you guys know, at the Capitol, for the rest of our time together this evening, I want us to consider briefly this question. What does God want us to be about in 2021? What does God want me uh, what, 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 does, what, what does God want this youth group to be about in 2021? What does God want me, a sixth grader, uh, an eighth grader, an 11th grader to be about in 2021? Now, there can be a lot of things that God wants us to be about in 2021, like focusing on prayer uh, or on reading the Bible. But I think there's something more fundamental than all those great things. For the past several weeks, I've been thinking about and reflecting from a small passage in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. And I really believe that this passage and its themes are where God wants us to be for 2021. God wants us to be a Micah chapter 6, verse 8 people in 2021 and even beyond that. And so if you're curious about what Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 is all about, what God wants us to be about in 2021, I invite you to turn with me to the minor prophet Micah. The book of Micah is located right after Jonah and right before Nahum. Uh, which will most likely mean nothing to most of us. And so if you need to look up where Micah is in the table of contents in your Bible, uh, there's no shame because I literally had to do so like 15 minutes ago. And so I'm going to take, I'm going to give you guys just a little bit of time to flip there. Micah chapter six, verses six to eight. Or I guess if you have like a phone or if you're looking online, I guess you can just go there really quickly. All right, Micah chapter six, verses six to eight. This is what the prophet Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Now I have a question for you guys. What does it mean to please someone? And how do you know when you have? How do you know when you've pleased your, your parents, uh, your friends, or even a teacher? Sometimes we can know what a thing is by what it isn't. And I'm going to share a story with you, and I'm going to have you guys figure out whether I please this person or not through this story. Now, back when uh, Megan and I were dating, actually, I think most of you knew this already, but if you guys didn't already know, uh, my wife is Megan, um, who was our previous church administrator. And, and also, in case you guys 
don't know who I am. Um, I'm also your pastor and like not some random guy. Um, so hi. Um, but many, many years ago, when, when Megan and I were still dating, um, I was an intern for this very same youth ministry. Um, I wasn't a pastor yet. Uh, I was still in seminary, which is a school for training pastors and a school that Keith and Layton are currently attending. I, I preached almost every Friday, and I frequently started writing messages the same day that I had to preach them. Uh, back then, I had to drive and sit through an hour and a half of traffic to get to school, and I would have to make the, the same drive back to Torrance. On top of that, I was working another job as a part-time barista, and I had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, every morning, just to get to my morning shift. Uh, Megan, on the other hand, didn't have any easier of a schedule. As a teacher, Megan woke up as early as I did, slept as late as I did, as she graded her students' homework, lesson plan for the next day. And we tried to make our relationship work despite our lack of sleep uh, and our busyness by still making time to see one another. And you know, at this point in our relationship, Megan and I had already been dating for a year. And at that time, you would think that I had learned something about being a good boyfriend, but I, I clearly didn't because there was a particular day that I had gone to see Megan, even though I didn't really want to. Uh, I, I had a lot of work to get done. Uh, I had finals. I had to preach. I had to work. And, and despite hesitating to see Megan, uh, I thought that I'd be a good boyfriend if I went to see her anyway. And if you know Megan at all, Megan can spot a scammer from pretty much anywhere, anytime, at all places. Because, because when Megan saw me, she knew that I didn't want to be there. And it was true. She, she saw right through me. And rightly so, because she, she, she was so upset, even though I want to see her. And I'm also a terrible liar, as some of you guys already know when we played Among Us together. But the, the great boyfriend that I was, despite knowing why she was upset, I still stupidly asked her why she was upset anyway. Because, you know, I, didn't I do the right thing? I, I still came to see her, even though I had work to do. Uh, I sacrificed my time. I made the trip out. I put off my homework and sermon prep. Did I please Megan? What do you guys think? Why was Megan so upset? It's because despite doing all the right things, my heart was in the wrong place. Megan saw right through my actions and, and saw that my heart was far from her making all of my actions completely insincere, no matter how costly my sacrifice was. By the way, I think Megan doesn't remember the story and we're married now, so I think we're pretty cool now. Uh, but if it, if it wasn't clear to you why I brought the story up, I brought the story up because this is precisely how we treat God. We give God our due diligence. We read our Bibles. We attend youth group Zoom. We watch the Sunday worship streams. We do all the things that we think God expects us to do. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that our hearts have been far from God. I, I know my heart has been. The TV is on in the living room, and you, you can hear Pastor Kim or Pastor whoever uh, faintly talking, but you're like on the other side of the house doing something else. Uh, you're listening to me talk right now, and you're chatting with people in the same chat. You think I don't know, but I see you guys. Um, you're doing your devotions, uh, but you're also watching like Pokemon or whatever you guys are doing or watching these days. We worship God the same way that we mindlessly scroll through our Instagram feeds. And the reason why I know we do this is because I do it. And so the question is, how do we worship God? in the right way? How can I start this new year and spend my entire year, my entire life, worshiping God in a way that actually pleases him? And it's here in Micah chapter six, verses six to eight, that God himself gives an answer to that very question. And God wants us to be a Micah chapter six, eight people. And so the key idea, if you're following along with our notes, is, the, is that God is pleased by a right heart, not mere performance. God is pleased by a right heart, not mere performance. The first, I'm going to break this down, this message into two parts, okay? The first is the wrong way to please God. 
mere performance, the wrong way to please God, mere performance. Now in the opening of Micah chapter six, we find that God has taken his people, Israel, to court and he calls upon the mountains and the hills as witnesses to testify against Israel. And God is upset with his people because the people whom he redeemed for his purposes and for his glory are living terribly. They oppress the helpless, the poor. They turn to false gods for, for their deliverance. God has ample evidence and witnesses for the rebellion and injustice. And so in verse three, God asks Israel, what have I done to you? And it's in verse six that the people of Israel respond to God, but they respond in a way that we don't really expect. What we see first in Israel's response to God is that first is that they misunderstood the point of sacrifice. They misunderstood the point of sacrifice. Take a look at the first half of verse six again. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Now Israel responds to God's question with another question. When God asks, what have I done to you to act so, un- to, to act so wickedly and unjustly? And Israel responds back with a question to the effect of asking, what have we not done? Now, don't you hate it when you ask a question, but it's answered with another question? You know, it's like, it's like you guys asking me a question about the Bible and I respond to you guys by asking, well, what do you guys think? I mean, we hate that. Look, look carefully at Israel's response. Israel's question is a protest of innocence. Why does God have beef with us? In fact, we don't know what more we can do to please him. I mean, isn't, isn't bowing enough? But actually, you know what, God, just for good measure, in case bowing isn't enough, what about burnt offerings, calves a year old? Take a look at the second half of verse six. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, this probably means nothing to any of us. So let me just explain briefly why the Israelites offer young calves. Young calves were expensive because they were usually eaten for its tenderness and not sacrificed. In other words, young calves were quality sacrifices. A young calf was as close to a perfect sacrifice that one could give. And it wasn't just one of them, but batches of them. Now, what's the point? What the worshipers proposed to offer to God becomes costlier and costlier. And so if bowing isn't enough, if, if sacrificing quality burnt offerings isn't enough, then what about straight up quantity, God? Will that please you? Will that get you off our backs? Let's take a look at the first half of verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Now, what Israel proposes to sacrifice to God gets even more lavish and even borderline absurd. It seriously escalates quickly from, from bowing to now thousands upon thousands of ram sacrifices and torrents of expensive oil, stuff that only kings can offer to God. And what we see in just a verse and a half is a picture of what Israel was prepared to give to God to prove their innocence. But there's something missing in this picture. In fact, there's something perverse and wicked in this picture. Because even though this picture shows shows us what Israel was prepared to offer to God, the picture also shows us what they didn't offer to God. The Israelites would offer everything. They would offer bowing, numerous, expensive, and even human sacrifices later in verse 7, except the one thing that God actually desired. What was Israel missing? The Israelites would offer everything except themselves. They would offer to God their stuff, but not their whole selves. Now, can we understand why God is upset now? God is upset because his people 
were living terribly, sinning and perverting justice, worshiping other gods. Their hearts were far from God six days a week, and they show up to the temple one day, and they think that just because they stepped foot in the temple, brought the right animals, the right sacrifices, the right stuff, that they're cool with God. But how could they be cool with God when their hearts were so far from him? How could I be chill with Megan just because I showed up and did my boyfriend duties? Verses six to seven show us that they had missed the whole point of the sacrifices. That if you go through the right emotions, the right behaviors in the Christian life, that's still not what it's about. Because it's about the integrity of your life before God. The corruption of the Israelites wasn't just that they were ripping people off. It was the corruption of their entire sacrificial system that ultimately ripped God off. That gave him everything that he technically asked for, bowing, some offerings, some oil, but didn't give him what he actually asked for. That was what was so perverse. The problem with the sacrifices of the Israelites was that they didn't even have to think about God to perform their religious duty. What we see in the Israelites' sacrifice is that we can do all the right things for God without having to think about God at all. That it's possible to do all the supposedly right things for God without actually having an actual relationship with him. We can do all the, the right and good things for God while still having a heart that is far from The Israelites had streamlined disobedient-proof religion so that God didn't have to occupy their hearts or their minds at all. You know, there's there's an episode of Parks and Rec where Leslie, the main character, uncharacteristically forgets her coworker Jerry's birthday. And so she plans to throw 64-year-old Jerry a surprise sweet 16 birthday party because he was born on a leap day and actually only had 16 actual birthdays in his entire life. And so she rents out her coworkers' lake house. She invites the rest of her office coworkers. There's cake, balloons, everything. But the only problem was that she forgot to invite Jerry to his own party. She was so focused on the details, the program, the event of the party, that she forgot to invite the one person to whom, for whom the party was for. I mean, she, she missed the whole point of the party. And this happens to us in a million different ways. We try to do the right things or a bunch of different things, and we forget the most important thing. Verses six to seven is meant to ask us, why do I do the things that I do in the Christian life? Why did I make this list of new year resolutions? Why do I come to youth group consistently or not? Why am I I nice to others? Verses six to seven are are meant to, to help us investigate and interrogate why we do the Christian things that we do. Like praying before meals or even praying in general, attending youth group or Sunday service, going through a 31 day devotional book with mom or dad, reading the Bible, meeting up with people. I think most of us know that it's about God or that it's, it's for God, but we're, are we ever surprised by how frequently we do all these things mindlessly or without further thought? I mean, isn't it so easy how we can just show up on Zoom youth group, YouTube church, do the talkie talkie in small groups, have perfect attendance, share prayer requests about your grandma's dog. We can read Leviticus in a year. We're serving our friends and our family, but my, what Micah chapter six has been challenging, at least me, is that you can do all these good Christian things and still miss the whole point. That perhaps in our supposed worship of God, God is actually absent in our worship. We've instead worshiped perhaps something else instead, maybe even ourselves. One of the most difficult challenges of being a pastor and probably the most ironic is that I can still do the hard and time-consuming task of writing, preaching messages, while, while still having a heart that is completely far away from God. I can, I can write, research, and, and preach messages without asking God's, for God's help. I can write and preach messages to you guys without actually 
doing the harder work of preaching this message to myself. I can do all the, the right pastor things while completely missing the whole point of being a pastor. And I know I'm talking about my own challenges here, but you know for yourself, maybe for some of us, musical worship is more about the quality of the sound than it is about the person that you're singing to. Listening to a sermon is about evaluating how practical or impractical the message is or how great or not so great the speaker is than it is about our simple obedience to God. Fellowship is more about hanging out with the people that you've you've grown up with since your diaper years than it is about being with the broader people that Jesus has brought together. I mean, if you were honest with yourself, why did you even come to youth group? Is it because it's, it's your one day to do your, dilig- your due diligence? Is it to get your parents off your back? Is it the good Christian thing to do to say that you're a part of youth group? Or is it because you want to grow? Is it because you actually want to be here? I mean, what is it for you? I mean, we'll take anyone who comes to youth group with minimal to no questions asked, but if you're coming to do me, the leaders here, the youth, this youth group, or even God a favor, you're not. I'm going to direct this question to every single person here, all 100 something of you. Why are you here? Why do you show up? Why do you serve? Why are you writing stuff down in your notes? Why? Is it because you love God or is it because of something else? The fundamental question isn't who am I before other people, like my parents, my friends, my pastor, or whoever. That is of second, third-rate importance. The fundamental question, first and foremost, is who am I before God? That is of first-order importance. Everything else is second and third. The point of sacrifice wasn't to buy God off and get him off your back so you could go back to whatever you were doing throughout the week. The point of sacrifice was to give God your whole self because the truest and purest sacrifice that you could ever give to God isn't your stuff but yourself. But the Israelites did not understand this. They lost sight of this and it revealed a more fundamental problem and pathology. The second thing that we see in Israel's response is secondly, that they misunderstood the God of grace. They misunderstood the God of grace. Take a look finally at verse, the last half of verse seven. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You know, the thing is that the Israelites knew they were far from God. I mean, why else would they talk about transgression or sin? But if even extravagant worship wasn't enough to tone, atone for their sins, then the Israelites were prepared to do, to do the one thing God strictly forbid them from doing. Human sacrifices. As early as Leviticus chapter 18, God strictly for, prohibits the people of Israel from offering their children for sacrifice. Because they were not to be like the surrounding nations. But in preparing to give him precisely the thing that God did not want, they had misunderstood who God was. All of these escalating sacrificial questions have the rhetorical and cumulative effect of asking God, are you happy now? And if you're wondering how it was possible for Israel to even consider giving something so terrible, something that God had never asked for in the first place, the simple answer is that their hearts were far from him. Israel's willingness to break the command of Leviticus wasn't the cause of their distance from God, but really just the symptom of it. Because the lesson here is that when our hearts are far from God, don't be surprised that our hearts will craft all sorts of reasons and excuses to dress up our blatant disregard and rebellion. When we act in ways that are foreign and out of step with God's character, 
what he desires, it is only because we have already treated him as a foreigner and as a stranger. And here in verse 7, one of the symptoms of a dysfunctional and distant relationship with God is if you think you can buy God off with your obedience and get him off your back, buying God off with our obedience reveals who we really think God is. Not the true God of grace, but really a God on our own terms, a God whom we can manipulate, control, a God who we think we can fool. At this point in Israel's history, Israel was already being influenced and transformed by the rotten and decaying practices of the surrounding nations. The pagan gods of the surrounding nations operated on a I scratch you, or I scratch your back, you scratch mine policy. In order to keep your God happy, to have him on your side, to have him do all the things that you wanted him to do, you needed to perform sacrifices, even human ones, over and over and over again. And we can see how this world, that this would influence Israel's understanding of God. They genuinely thought that they could fool and bargain with God. That if you do this for me, God, in return, I will do this for you. Israel was so far from God that they thought that he could be bought off. Now, this was Israel. But the question is, what about us? Now, it might be packaged a little bit differently. It might not be animal or human sacrifices, God forbid. But the problem is still the same. We bargain and manipulate God. God, if you allow me to get into this program, if you allow me to date this person or that person, then I will do whatever you want. In fact, sometimes we'll even use God as our bargaining chip with our parents. Mom or dad, if you get me this thing, or if you allow me to do this, then I will do, I will go to youth group, read my Bible, do whatever God wants. The list can go on and on. What is it for you? How have you bargained with God? How have you placed God in your debt? If our hearts are far from God, then it shouldn't surprise us that we know very little about this God. Because if we think about, if, if we think that we can buy God off to fool and deceive God, to place God in our debt, then we fundamentally misunderstand who God is to begin with. Because if you think about it, who is God and who are we? God is the creator of all things. Created animals, calves, rams, oil, humans. And because God is the creator of all things, that makes him the rightful owner of all things. So does God need any of these things, any of these sacrifices? Is there actually anything that we can give to God that he doesn't already have? Is God less God? Is God less than God if we do not sing to him or pray to him or worship him? Is God so needy for our attention that he is not God without it? No. God is God without any of us. God is not our debtor. As debtors to God, we are not in any position to bargain with God because we have, not, we have, we have nothing to bargain with. Because what we deserve from God, the only deal that we deserve is death. If our hearts are far away from God, if we didn't really want God to begin with, but have only seen God as just someone to bargain with, someone to manipulate, someone to fool, then it shouldn't surprise us that the only deal that God will give us is a life of his judging and wrathful presence. That is a completely fair deal. And what Israel failed to see is that God fundamentally is not a bargaining God, but a gracious God. Israel thought that they needed to sacrifice their firstborn to appease God. But what they failed to see is that God is so gracious that he is the one who would provide a sacrifice for them. Israel put their firstborn to death to save their own skin, but God put his firstborn to death to save our own souls. Jesus, God's firstborn, is the fulfillment of every single sacrifice God ever commanded. I mean, he's the whole point of the sacrifice. 
Every animal sacrifice was made in anticipation to that ultimate sacrifice. He would be the lamb who would go to the slaughter, taking upon the sin of our hatred of God. And he would go to the cross and die in our place. And on three days, he would rise again. Why does God do this? Maybe because he owes us something? No. It's because he is a gracious God who is lavish in his love, abundant in his grace, overflowing in his mercy toward those who do not deserve it, those who have not bargained for it. God is far more willing, far more patient, far more gracious to forgive than we are even willing to repent. God is not waiting for you to find the right deal, for you to be good enough. He chooses to bless us in Jesus Christ, despite what we deserve. And so what is the application? You know, the word for hypocrite wasn't originally a a religious word. The word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that was translated actor or actress, someone who put on a mask, performed and played different roles in a movie, drama, skit, or play. The reason why they were called a hypocrite was because their performance character was not the same as their real character. It was just a performance. And the reason why hypocrisy was later applied to Christians was because a Christian could pretend to do all the right Christian things, put on the right mask of all the right Christian emotions and hide inward unbelief. And the question that I want to ask you is in 2020, and I know 2020 has been a difficult year for obvious reasons, but in 2020, maybe even your entire life to this day, have you been pretending? performing, acting your part in doing the things that God, that supposedly good Christians do, going to Zoom youth group, showing up for YouTube Sunday services, praying, reading your Bibles. Let me ask you, are you tired of pretending? The performing, acting, putting on a good act. If you are tired of faking the Christian life, then God graciously calls you now to remove your mask, to drop your act, to come to him and to rest. Why? Because Jesus has done it all for you. In Jesus, Jesus, God comes not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, the the wearied, the burdened, the, the pretenders, the fakers, and the performers. At the end of the day, it is never about what we could ever do for God, but what God has done already for us in Jesus Christ. God doesn't need your performance. Because of Jesus, it is finished. Because of Jesus, the truest and purest sacrifice that you could ever give to God now isn't your performance, but simply, wholly, and totally yourself. God is more interested in you as a person before him than anything that you could ever possibly give him. The only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask that you have donned on. It is not mere performance that God desires, but a right heart. That's what brings us to our second point, the right way to please God. The right way to please God, a right heart. Now you might think that the whole takeaway of this message is don't worry about what you do or God doesn't care about what we do. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the point, what the point of this message is. God clearly and obviously cares about our actions and what we do. The reason why God was upset with Israel was because of their unjust actions and their idolatrous behavior. But the whole point of this passage is that righteous behavior can never cover and mask our unrighteous hearts. 
Because God, God does not look merely on the outward appearance of our actions, but upon the inward habits of our hearts. This is what Micah is getting at in verse 8. Take a look finally at verse 8. It says, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The fact that this has been previously said before shows just, shows just how easy it is to forget what God requires. This verse isn't describing anything new. It's not a secret list of requirements that were previously unknown. What is this list? God requires three simple things from us. Just three simple things. Justice, kindness, and humility before God. Justice refers to the pursuit of right relationships, pursuing equity, doing what's objectively right. Kindness refers to how you respond to people who don't do what's right. It is a concern and compassion for those in need. They might not deserve your kindness, but kindness goes above and beyond and motivates you to move toward them, especially in their need. Humility before God is simply your uncovered life before God, your life laid bare, a life that knows that is laid bare before God. Is not pretending to know God better than God does. But if you look at these three characteristics of what God requires, there is a thread that loops all of them together. These three characteristics all have to do with your relational character, how you treat others and how you treat God. That is what God is interested in. God is far more interested in your relational character than anything that you could ever do for him. I mean, think about all the, diff all the different people in your life, your siblings, your, your parents, the people that you see across the Zoom screen, your friends, the, the difficult people in your life. Now think about the Christian stuff that we do for God, like reading our Bibles for 30 minutes or sticking around youth group for two hours, three hours. The way that we think about these relationships in our lives versus things like reading our Bibles and attending youth group will reveal what our hearts are truly like. Because if you think about it, it's pretty easy to read our Bibles for 30 minutes. I mean, I mean it may be hard to sit still, but you can do it. It's, it's measurable. There's a time limit. You don't have to understand it, but at least you can say that you read it and check it off your list. It's also relatively easy to stick around, around youth group for two hours every Friday night. I mean, sure, you might not like it. You might be coerced to be doing it. it. might be boring or annoying, but you can just do it because all it takes is just sheer effort. I mean, all I have to do is just wait patiently for Eric to stop talking, give my usual two or three sentence contribution in small groups, and just bounce and do whatever I want. I mean, it's time consuming, but at least I can say that I did it. But checking off Bible reading, youth group attendance, doesn't necessarily mean that you are a kinder, humbler, or more just person. Because if you remember all the people that I had you think about, your parents, your siblings, your friends, you'll know that it's way harder to be a just person or a kind person or a humble person in those kinds of relationships. Because being a just, kind, and humble person before God is less measurable because it's less about what you do than who you actually are. In other words, being a just or kind or a humble person has less to do with our behavior and has more to do with our character. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God aren't merely individual act, uh, commands to do, but they're fundamentally ways that you're supposed to be. Rather than merely posting some trendy political topic on Instagram one, once in a while, or occasionally opening the door for some stranger at the grocery store, or sometimes reading your Bible, doing justice 
loving kindness, walking humbly with God weren't occasional occurrences that you added onto your to-do list, but a consistent lifestyle. They weren't merely things to do or check off, but things that you were supposed to be. I'm pretty sure after this message ends, some of you are going to ask me, so what just kind or humble things should I do this weekend, Eric? And my answer is that that's not the point. Because the question isn't merely, have I done honest, truthful, generous, and just deeds today? But rather, am I the kind of person who deals kindly, lovingly, and justly with others? It's the subtle difference between what you do versus who you are. It's the subtle difference between mere rules and deep character. Because beneath the individual acts that you do, there is a certain heart that God is, lurking, is looking for, that he, something that he's searching for. And this is what the Israelites and eventually the Pharisees did not get. Because rather than seeing justice, kindness, and humility as habits of the heart, the Israelites saw them as things to merely do and check off. I mean, they had a, they had a legalistic approach to their religion. Now, maybe you've heard that before. The Israelites and the Pharisees were legalistic. I mean, I'm pretty sure we've used this term in our relationships before. Like, my parents are so legalistic, or maybe perhaps they're not legalistic enough. I think we're all pretty familiar with the idea of legalism. Now, one way of defining legalism is believing that you are approved by God when you do good acts and deeds or by obeying the commands of God. Now, on this definition alone, most of us are probably off the hook here. Like, okay, I don't do that, Eric, so nice try. But there's something simpler beneath legalism. If we look at legalism, if we understand legalism a bit more simply, legalism is simply the thought that God cares about more about what we do than who we are. That God cares more about the scrupulous details of how long we read our Bibles or how many dishes we washed or how long we've been going to Lighthouse or whether we open or close our eyes when we pray or whether we've been, we're being discipled or not than who we are before God. At the heart of legalism is the thought that God cares more about what we do than who we are. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Like mo most of these things, now, Notice I, say, I said most of these things. Most of these things are not bad. I'm not discouraging you from doing stuff in the Christian life. God clearly wants us to read our Bibles, to love others. But what verse 8 does is it takes us away from the individual acts of justice, kindness, humility. And it takes us to the very heart of justice, kindness, and humility. Why? It's because individual acts of justice, kindness, and humility can be completely self-serving. I mean, the amount of time we spend praying, the amount of time that we've been going to Lighthouse, who we're being discipled by, how we virtue signal on social media, all of those things can be used as a way to demonstrate how, how much better we are, how much more woke, how much more righteous we are than others. And so why does God care more about our character rather than our individual actions? It's because God is not like man who easily validates and rewards individual outward behavior. What does God want us to be instead? What kind of person does God desire? Look at verse eight again. It's someone who does justice, loves kindness, walks humbly with God. Now you might ask, yes, but what does this mean? Well, if you remember verses six to seven, Israel sacrificed, performed, did all the right religious duties, not because they actually cared about God, but because they cared about themselves. Israel made even the sacrifice of God about themselves, where their supposed worship of God was really veiled worship of themselves. 
And so when we remember verses six to seven, we come to the simple realization that the point of verse eight in contrast with verses six to seven is that it's no longer about you. It isn't about being a better person or what you get out of it or how knowledgeable you are about some political topic or being authentic or true to yourself. Even though verse eight calls us to be people who are just, kind and humble, the question is in relation to who, with respect to who, to ourselves? You see, verse eight isn't actually about us. It's about God and other people. The requirements of verse eight, what God requires in verse eight isn't, is fundamentally, basically, and simply a call to stop looking at yourself, to stop doing whatever would benefit you and to wake up to those around you and to remember the God who made you and graciously saved you. That's it. That's what verse eight is. To put it another way, God simply wants us to be people who care about others. He wants us to be people who actually have an, a, a, an actual relationship with God, not some forced perfunctory interaction once in a while on a Friday or a Sunday. He wants us to be people who are generous to others because of his generosity toward us. When we look at verse eight and with this larger perspective, it actually puts tiny, the tiny, smaller, everyday things that we do in their place. I mean, if you think about all the little things that you do in your, in your life, doing devotions, praying, attending youth group, going to, going to school, loving others, speaking truthfully and purely, sacrificing your time. What are all these things out about anyway? Like I mentioned earlier, God doesn't need any of this. And so why? It's because God wants us to be people who give ourselves away. People who don't just think about themselves. People who are generous. People who are pure in heart. People who open up our hearts to God and others. People who are dependent on him. The path that God puts us on, the path that God desires that we walk on is a path of generosity, hospitality, kindness, humility, putting God and others above yourself. A path that opens up our hearts to God and others. All of which happens when you actually do have a relationship with God. And I don't think I need to really give you specifics on what this looks like. I think you know exactly what this looks like for you. But I know for some of you, this sounds like a mixed message. Like one of the most confusing messages that we hear from the church today is that Jesus came to bring forgiveness for our rule breaking. But once we've trusted in Jesus, we try to do better. And when we fail, well, at least there's Jesus and then rinse and repeat. And this is understandable because if we don't read this verse carefully, it is very easy to think that way. On the surface, it sounds like God is swapping out one set of moral behavior. Don't do this for another set of moral behavior. Do this instead. But this is not the message of the scriptures and this is not the message of the gospel. In fact, it is a, it's a false message. Because if you think about it, in fact, the more that you think about it, this is an impossible task. It's only when we try to be good that we realize just how bad we are. Because who can honestly act justly all the time? To love kindness all the time, to walk humbly with God all the time. In all of history, who has ever, ever lived a fully just life, a fully kind and merciful life, a, fully lo- a life fully dependent on God. Do you know anyone like that? There's only one person. God doesn't ask us to do something unless it's something that he hasn't already done himself. The reason why God lays this path down for us to walk on is only because God and Jesus Christ walked down this path first. Every step toward us was a step toward justice, toward dealing with our sin, our sin 
toward forgiving us of our sin, toward bringing us to himself. So do you see what justice, kindness, and humility are all ultimately about? It was never about you, never about your ability. It's ultimately about him. And now Jesus lays his life down for us so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The hope of the gospel isn't isn't that because of Jesus, we have the hope of becoming better, more obedient human beings, but that rather because of Jesus, we have the hope, we have the promise, we have the reality of being brand new human beings. Living as Jesus lived, loving as Jesus loved, giving as Jesus gave, becoming through Jesus a living sacrifice. How do we please God in 2021? With a right heart, not mere performance. And so as I conclude tonight, we're going to do something a little differently. One very specific way that we're going to respond to this message is that Layton is going to conclude our time by leading us with two songs of musical worship. And I want you, I want you guys to really consider the songs, to consider the, the words of the songs, not just the music, but the words. And I hope that as you can consider and reflect on the words of those songs, that, that, would, that the Spirit would do something in your heart that would prick your conscience, that as you reflect on it, that you would pray and that you would come to God in confession, that you would be so moved to, to, to remove your spiritual mask, to confess your sin, to come to him as you are with your weariness, your distraction, your, even your, your, your pretending, and to ask God to heal your unbelief, to find mercy and grace at the foot of the cross, and to ask God for help to be the kind of people that he desires. And so before I have uh, Layton play, I'm going to pray for us and that he's going to lead us in another set of musical worship. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. You know our hearts. They're evil. Totally evil. And so we recognize, Father, in the midst of our evil hearts, the way that our hearts craft techniques and ways to fool you. We know that we can't fool you. But more and more importantly, we know, we thank you, that it is even in the midst of our evil hearts that, that Jesus comes to cleanse us, to make us new, to wash us new again. So Father, we come now, even as we sing, that you would help us to see you for who you are, see you, to see ourselves for who we are, but to see Jesus for who he is. And we thank you, Father. Yes, all in Jesus' name.